to the penultimate serious seminar of the spring 2019 season. I'm honored today to introduce Rob Munt, who comes to us from Eli Lilly. Uh, he's been there working in cybersecurity for 18 years now. Uh, another notable fact is that he comes from Purdue, and so uh, can give us an idea of what Lilly is doing and what you might be doing 18 years from now. Thank you. Great, thank you. So I'm gonna move out here so I'm not quite behind the podium. Hopefully the, the camera can still stay with me. So I uh, wanted to talk a little bit today about um, keeping your online identity safe and a little bit about how modern application architecture um, is moving and, and, and how things are changing around authentication online today. So, so as you mentioned before, I, I did graduate from Purdue. Uh, it seems like it was just yesterday, but it was not. It was back in 2001. Um, but I remember I used to cut through this building here and stop and grab a soda in the little store upstairs. So it's uh, good memories to be back, and I always like to try to, try to get back to the campus whenever I can. Um, I majored in computer technology. I think that major has kind of changed names a couple times over the years. Um, at the time, there were a couple different focuses. I focused on telecommunications and networking. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And um, I've been working at Lilly for 18 years. And most of that time has been in the information security field. And my role is I'm an enterprise security architect. And I focus on our identity domain. So, so all things kind of access and authentication, um, identity management um, are things that I have responsibility for. So passwords, not really so modern, and, um, but they've kind of been the bedrock of security for accounts for uh, really since the beginning of computer time, it feels like. And not a lot really has changed about them over the years. As technology has changed a lot, we still kind of rely on these. Um, and there's a couple of things that are bad about passwords. One is that they're weak. They're, humans are really bad at making good ones. Um, that's kind of one thing. The other kind of drawback is they're ubiquitous. Everybody knows how to use them. So there are lots of efforts I've seen around passwordless authentication. Passwordless authentication is definitely a strategy. Um, most um, information security professionals, most consumer sites are looking to, to enable. Um, I, I've seen some where you scan a barcode and you log in and maybe you store a token. Um, but Troy Hunt actually writes a, a good blog about this where he mentions Getting rid of them completely um, is going to take a long time if it's ever possible. And, and part of that is around the fact that they're just completely ubiquitous. Everybody knows how to use them. When you go to register for a site, you sort of expect that little window to be there. Oh, I can log in with Facebook. Oh, I can create my account here. Here's my password. I move on. If I start putting in other options, it's just, just going to confuse those users. So what makes passwords so weak? Um, well, there's lots of different attack vectors. Um, against passwords. I'm going to kind of go over a few. Um, there's a good uh, website and framework called MITRE ATT&CK, and it goes through all of the um, tactics, techniques, and procedures used by attackers on lots of different methods. Um, but, but some of the few around um, credentials I've listed up here, one is password spray attacks. So uh, I'll talk about password, like brute force attacks, which a lot of people kind of think about when they think about password attacks. Um, password spray attacks, a lot more common, especially recently. Um, there have been a lot of breaches of databases of passwords over the years, so there's a big pool to choose from in terms of what users have made their passwords. 
Um, and so you'll start to see lots of reoccurring themes and passwords and, and you can predict um, what passwords are gonna be and you can use very common ones. Um, I love you, for example, is a very common password. It's usually in the top 10 when it's listed out every year on various sites, um, amongst others. So a password spray attack is when an attacker doesn't really care whose account they compromise. They're just looking to compromise an account. Um, so they may have a long list of user IDs um, they've obtained somewhere and, and they have a target site and they just spray maybe the 10 most common passwords or 10 passwords they think are common for that particular site across every account that they have. It's not enough to really lock out or disable or um, raise suspicion on any one individual account, but there's a pretty good chance that one of those accounts will be compromised. At that point, an attacker could pivot or um, take their next steps. Password guessing. Um, it's really just a broad term. All of these attacks sort of fall underneath password guessing. But, but another example of an attack is I, an attacker may be targeting an individual specifically, um, and they may use social engineering or a dictionary attack to um, whittle down the list of possible passwords. So they can um, do research, search for you on Google, search for you on Facebook, um, try to attack um, based on a set of passwords that they've socially engineered or guessed based on common dictionary words about you. Incidentally, um, historically lots of accounts have recovery processes on them. So while you may not, you may have a secure password, um, the, you may be able to reset that password by answering challenge question and answer, right? Which are a lot easier to socially engineer. So you've probably seen that before where you've forgotten your password on an account you don't use very frequently. You go in to answer questions about yourself so that you can reset that password. And those things are generally easy uh, to socially engineer about a user. So um, a good tip is if you do come across a site that's asking you to do that, um, try to pick questions if you can that um, wouldn't be easily found about you on Facebook and things like that. Um, or answer with fake questions, fake answers to the questions. The struggle there is then you have to remember all of your fake questions and that can get you caught in, a, in an issue too. But that's another style of attack you'll see against passwords. And then finally I'll talk about brute force and this is where I, I'm targeting a single account or set of accounts and I'm just gonna try as many permutations as I can um, until I finally crack that password. Most of the time you'll see this done in an offline scenario. So I've somehow obtained a copy of hashed passwords um, and then I run a um, basically password guessing attack where I generate thousands of attempts against that offline database and, and, until I get one correct. Um, so a, a common method to combat this is password hashing. So typically sites if they're storing a password about you when you're registering, they'll hash your password before it's stored. So your, your password hopefully is not stored in plain text. It's run through a one-way hash function. So it's a mathematical function. I can't explain all of um, what happens, but it basically takes your password, inserts it into the function, and a bunch of random characters come out the end. You cannot reverse that back to your password. But what you can do is you can try thousands and thousands of passwords against the same hash function until you get what's called a collision. So you find a hash that matches, um, and then you've basically determined that password. It takes a lot more processing power in order to do that because each time you have to um, run your password attempt through the hash function which takes processing power. Um, 
Does anybody know what a rainbow table is? This is another style of attack used. You see a couple head nods. Rainbow table is um, maybe a commonly available published table of, of passwords transformed into hashes for a given hash function. So if I did have a set of hashes, I wouldn't even have to go through the trouble of running my crack against them. I would just um, compare the hashes in the two tables until I found a match. Um, and so a common method to combat that is a method called salting. Right? So now when I hash the password, I'm going to add a salt value. Um, which hopefully is unique per account, um, which again is going to just add one more layer of complexity, um, mostly combats rainbow tables because the rainbow tables won't have accommodated for the hash that you've chosen, um, and you force those users back into um, using high processing power to brute force. So you'll see a lot of the information security is a lot, a lot about back and forth. An information security professional puts in a mitigation against an attack, and the attackers find a way around it, and then information security has to respond. And so that's kind of the role you know, that you play in, as an information security professional is your job is never really done. It's you've made something better until at which point that's obsolete and then you have to make it better again. Um, so those are some of the different attacks and, and this is why um, you know, passwords as a, as a factor of authentication are, are weak. So what makes a password strong? It's complexity, right? The requirement to have all of the numbers or different special characters. I can find three different keyboards deep where I can use a double byte character in my password. Who, who thinks that complexity adds to the strength of a password? The way I ask this question makes no one want to raise their hand. You do. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, complexity or length? Complexity. No. So special characters. Right, length. So this is a master's class. I should have known you guys would know this. But length is exponentially more, uh, makes your password exponentially more strong than complexity would. Um, and here's a formula, and I know you guys are college students, so you would, wouldn't want to get through a, a talk without having some math equations on the, on the board. Um, typically, a strength of a password would be calculated based on something called entropy, which is the randomness of your password. That would be the hardness, how hard it is to guess. Um, this particular um, equation is just showing you the number of permutations of a given password. So you'd have to run that through another set of equations to find the entropy. But I just found this interesting that, that the number of permutations of a password are your total pool of characters that you have to the power of the number of characters in the length. So, so that's what makes it exponentially stronger to add length. Um, and so here's an example I used to stay out of scientific notation. I used a, a four-character complex password. So I chose 92 potential characters in my character set. But to the fourth power only works out to be 74 million permutations. I could correct that you know, probably in seconds. Um, a simple eight-character password, so just using lowercase alphabet numbers with eight characters is 200 billion combinations. So that just kind of shows you the scale of why length leads to more strength. Um, also, again, back to the scenario where users are very predictable. They like to throw special characters if they're required, or numbers at the end. They like to put capital letters at the beginning. The hackers are on to the trick where you change out the A for the at symbol. Um, users are pretty, are pretty predictable, and there's lots of data to help support that because of all the breaches that have occurred, and you can go and look <laughs> at a rich amount of data that shows you what users' passwords have been. So here are some more attacks where I don't even need to know your, why would I even bother trying to find out your password? I don't need to know that for a lot of different attacks. So uh, one of those is phishing. So um, 
you'll find people type squatting on a domain or um, trying to host a site out of um, a given cloud site um, and make it look like a FedEx login or a Gmail login or anything that you might be used to putting a username and password in and I might be targeting. Um, and then I send you an email and you click on the link and you think, oh, I have a package. Because at this point, everybody has a package coming to their door at pretty much all times, right? So pretty good chance if I send you something from FedEx or UPS, uh, you might click that link. I prompt you for a password. You might enter it and give it to me. I didn't even have to go through the trouble of cracking it or guessing it. Um, credential dumping is another one. This is sometimes combined with phishing. Many times when you click on those links, um, malware can be delivered um, as part of that, and remote control of your system could be obtained by that user. So just by clicking on that link, um, there are many styles of attacks that can inject malware or remote control type software. And now I can start to um, dump passwords out of password stores or caches um, and I never needed you to even type them in for me. Or I could install a keystroke logger and then just wait until you type your password. Um, access token attacks, these are sort of more um, modern style attacks. Um, one example of an attack that you'll see is um, on OAuth access tokens. So does anybody know what OAuth is? So OAuth is a more modern um, authentication methodology, and you see that used in a lot of uh, more modern websites, and you see that a lot on things like Google, Facebook, social media. Um, and basically, it allows you to log in using whatever credentials you're using. That could be um, more than one credentials, could be a password, and you obtain a token, and that token is good for a certain period of time. Um, but if I exfiltrate that token, then I can use it to be you because these are what are called bearer tokens. It's like a dollar bill. If I find it, I get to use it. Um, and so some sites may make those um, long so the user experience is good, but then that has sort of the double-edged sword of um, also being long-lived for an attacker to potentially exfiltrate and reuse. A lot of the attacks that you've seen against some social media attacks um, or social media breaches leverage some form of access token manipulation where they're getting tokens on behalf of users or escalating the privileges that those tokens should have or exchanging those tokens for more privileged ones. Yes? How would you protect against those tokens being stolen? So when you're developing an application, there's definitely flows that you want to use in terms of how you do that. Um, You'd never want to store them or expose them to a browser, would be the first one, because a browser can't keep a secret. So you want to keep them confidential. So if you're, if you're coding a site, you want to store those server-side um, so that they're really never exposed to, the, exposed to the user. You have complete control as a user. If you do store them in the context of a device, um, you need to understand um, what the security controls exist about that device and make decisions around length um, how long of, of expiry that you would want to make that token and store it in a secure encrypted place like the iOS keychain, for example. Um, and, and there's lots of documentation on certain different types of flows, right? If you have a single page app, for example, where you're running a lot of JavaScript within the app um, and you're not running really a lot of server-side code, you would expose a token. So you would want to choose a different methodology or a different um, flow in order to protect against that. So it, it goes back to the concept of security by design. So, so no one thing is going to protect you from an attack. You need to take a look at the overall landscape of what you're dealing with. How sensitive is my data? 
what type of application am I using, and, and what are the different attack methods against that, and what are the best set of mitigations. And you don't want just one, right? If you're relying on just one set of mitigations, um, you're, you're probably already going to lose. But those are some of the things that you would want to think about in terms of building that application to be secure by design. But thanks, that's a good question. Um, another thing to be careful of, if you do use things like social media to log into other sites or to, to connect to third-party applications within a social media site, um, is that those applications are registered on your behalf to obtain tokens. And you can go and look in a lot of those applications to see where you've delegated those rights. And so going to look at that to see that you still want to be a part of that third-party app um, would be important. Think about that as you choose whether or not to log in with a social media account to a given site. They'll usually give you a notification saying, hey, do you want to allow this site to Lock, you know, be used for authentication, and they might share data too. So those are things to just watch for as you're um, making those choices. So I think we've sort of beat that, um, beat the password up enough. Um, we understand that it's, it, even though it's going to be around, uh, the goal should be to get rid of them. And as a standalone factor of authentication, uh, we should try to avoid that. So multi-factor authentication is. Uh, is definitely something that would help protect against all of those password attacks, right? So at, at this point, we can make a strong password, and we should, but it, we know that that's not going to be enough. If somebody wants to hack that account or, or compromise that account based on that password, they're going to. So anytime you can enable two-factor authentication um, or multi-factor authentication, this is where you take um, at least one factor from each of these categories, typically defined as something you know. So that could be like a password or a PIN or some sort of secret. Um, something that you have, that could be your smartphone where you might get an SMS text or a call. There are some smartphone apps. I have a YubiKey um, that I carry around that's a hardware key. Um, that's something that I have. Um, and something that you are. So this would be like a biometric. So any, any combination of two or more of those um, are choices that you, can, that you can make when you're setting up an account. Lots of online accounts make this optional. If it's even available at all, they don't require it. And so you, sometimes you have to dig around in the settings to find it, but you should always enable it. And the, the thing that I always say as well is not all multi-factor is created equal. There are definitely some that are stronger than others. Um, SMS text being one that's, that's really weak, both because um, it's relatively easy for attackers to intercept those. Um, attackers can fish you for those the same way they could fish you for a password. Um, and it doesn't really technically fit the two different categories. Because even though I texted something to your phone, I texted you a one-time password, and that's still something that you know. So there's debate as to whether or not that really should be um, considered a factor or not. Um, it mostly does um, fall underneath the something that you have. Um, but it would be weaker than, say, using the Google Authenticator app or um, any types of other um, authenticator apps that you can integrate with third-party applications. So biometric authentication. This is just another factor to be used. Um, it's interesting we talked about some of those permutations of passwords. Even an eight-character simple password had billions of comp of of combinations, one thing to consider when you're using biometrics is um, 
biometrics are unique to you, but there's a false acceptance rate that's associated with that in most cases. So um, there's certification documents that you can read around how testing is done when you're building a biometric solution. Um, but generally, you'll have a certain number of false accepts. You'll have a certain number of false rejects. Um, and and you're, you're generally looking for the crossover rate um, to balance the user experience with the, with the false acceptance rates or the security. Being the paranoid security guy, I, I generally jump to the false acceptance rates because I want to know what those are. Um, I, I've listed some vendors out you know, that, that we use. Um, Apple Face ID, really good at, at one in a million. But the, the point of this is really just biometric authentication is good, but it, it, it's good as a factor of authentication and not as multi-factor authentic, as a single factor of authentication. Um, and it's best when tied to a specific device with additional control. So back to my comment before about it's really what that overall story is. For example, on Apple Face ID, if your face fails more than, I think it's three or four times, there's a delay. Um, or it may force you to enter your passcode back up because you've failed too many times. And that mitigates against somebody trying to brute force spoof your attack. Um, these are generally combined also with hardware protections. So um, if we store the, the, the data that we're comparing on like a cryptographic chip like a TPM, um, then I can separate that, device, that, that processor out from the rest of the device and make the biometric authentication unique to that device. So an attacker who's remote would have no ability to try to attack that because they would have to physically have my device to even make an attempt. Um, so bio biometrics good, just some interesting data around the different permutations of, of pins and false acceptance rates. So in general, like I said, we want to get away from passwords. So a lot of multi-factor authentication today would be something you know and something that you have that's really common. That's probably the default you find at most sites. More trying to shift that over time as we think more modern about um, authentication to something that you have and something that you are. So I have this device, it has a registered biometric um, on it, and I have to have the combination of those two things to access something. And I'll talk a little bit more later about the, the architecture that supports that. So risk-based or behavior-based authentication is something that's, uh, that's a little bit newer, especially in the consumer sites you'll see um, these types of things being invoked because if I put a user or a customer through a lot of hoops in order to log in or I'm asking them to download authenticator apps and enable MFA and make really long passwords, they may not register for my site, right? And that might cost me business. So I want to keep things secure, but I also want to balance that user experience. So there's always a balance between that. You know, if you build something that's so secure that nobody logs into it, then you haven't really succeeded. So um, with, especially with a lot of financial institutions, you'll see fraud detection techniques, um, big data analytics being taken into play to look at different behaviors to trigger friction when risk is detected, but to allow things to be more streamlined when they're not. So. So here's Rob Munt, and, and, and this also sort of tells a story more about my identity shouldn't be tied to some password that I know or even some multi-factor device that I have. My identity is really all the things that you mentioned about me when, I, um, when you introduced me, right? My, those are the things that make up me. You know, I have, um, I have all of these attributes that combine to tell that story of me. It's not just about a password or a phone that I have. Um, 
but, but one of the things that I may look at if I'm doing risk-based authentication is what type of device that I typically use, right? So I use a Mac. Um, if I'm doing risk-based analytics, I know how often I use a Mac or not a Mac potentially, or how often I use my PC versus going mobile with iOS. Um, so I'm building a behavior-based profile. Um, what browser is that given user using? You know, it's Safari for a lot of Mac users. Um, the times of day, right? I'm not usually up at three in the morning checking a lot of accounts online. Um, so that might trigger an event of higher risk based on that. Um, location, whether that's a geolocation or an IP address location. Um, I may have common locations that I use. I could also trigger like an impossible travel. So a lot of sites will look to see, okay, well I had a successful login from Rob this morning from Lafayette and then four hours later, one from Russia. Well, that's probably not Rob, right? That's impossible travel because of the, the geolocation. So you see a lot of these techniques being used to help reduce the user friction that, that, that goes along with the security. So, so I may only trigger an interactive MFA if the, if the user triggers one of these risk behaviors. You'll see this a lot um, too if you're using like online banking. Um, you might get in with just your password um, or maybe you can click like a remember me if you do MFA. And then if you go to do a transfer of all of your money, the entire balance of your account out to you know, some numbered account, then it's gonna trigger another, another event. Um, and behind the scenes, it may even trigger more events that, that researchers are um, trying to do, detect, and respond against. So talking a little bit more about some new standards that are coming to you. So um, FIDO2 and the FIDO Alliance um, have existed. FIDO Alliance has existed for a while, um, creating standards around authentication. And it's the, um, trying to make authentication more uh, user-friendly, but also stronger. Um, so like the YubiKey that I mentioned before is a, it, is a device that's FIDO compliant. And there's a relatively new standard that was just ratified called WebAuthn. And, and this is what you'll see from FIDO2 or CTAP. That's a protocol that exists for um, device authentication. And, and WebAuthn is an extension of that that allows you to use that device authentication remotely. So what this would look like is I choose some authenticator, right? So maybe a smartphone, maybe with a biometric tied to it, a smartwatch, a hardware key like a YubiKey, um, even something Bluetooth or NFC, um, maybe my authenticator. So I carry that around with me um, and that's tied to my device. That generally will create some sort of internal authenticator like a certificate um, or a private key and, and that's what sort of CTAP is. That allows me to get into my device because I have maybe a biometric plus that hardware authenticator. WebAuthn allows me to then use that authentication that I've done to that device, proving that I have that um, device in, in possession, and log into sites remotely. Um, so that was just, I think, ratified by the Web Consortium and I believe um, there are several browsers that are already supporting it. So this is something that you may see more of over time is the ability to use these hardware keys um, or smartphone apps to do authentication end-to-end -end and really get into that scenario of enabling passwordless authentication. Um, probably still, again, won't get rid of passwords completely because not every user is going to want to go through that just to log into the sites because kind of getting back to the passwords being ubiquitous. So 
here's just some ways or some tips, and um, a lot of this may seem uh, common sense, but, but not everybody sort of understands all of these. So I'll, I'll kind of go through them. We kind of talked about this before is create strong. And again, we understand that strong means long. Um, passwords and never reuse them across sites. So that, that's another important thing. If I create a really good password, but then I reuse it across 20 sites, if any one of those sites is doing the wrong thing from a security perspective and either storing that password in the wrong way or gets breached, <laughs> um, sorry. So, so if one breach could lead to 20 breaches, right, if I use the same password. So you, that's all about reducing your blast radius, right? And that's something that um, security professionals think of too. You, so you want to be able to protect um, your assets um, against an attack, but if one asset is compromised, you want to limit the blast radius to just that one asset. So um, that applies to more than just passwords in an information security world, but it goes back to the what are the what are the tactics, what are the TTPs that attackers are using? What's the best way to mitigate my risk? How can I stop or limit the damage in the event of an attack? So don't reuse your passwords across sites because you're increasing your blast radius. Um, use a password manager to help you um, manage and remember these. So um, there's, there's lots of good ones out there. Um, it's hard to create long, strong passwords. I mean, if you think about the number of online accounts that you have, I, I mean, I feel like I've got to have 100. And it's hard to find and remember unique long passwords for each of those. So password managers help you both create random passwords, because many of them will actually suggest passwords. Um, their algorithms are probably a lot better at creating a random password than you are. Um, but it'll also store and remember them for you um, so that you can um, not have to remember them and you can reuse them across a lot of sites. One thing that I would do using a password manager is Stay on top of the, whichever product that you're using. If you see news about them that they've suffered a breach, um, you, know, you may need to change your master password or you may need to take other action or you may want to go and change all of your passwords in your vault. Um, but, but understand that, know who you're using, stay yeah, up to speed on, on the news around that particular vendor. Um, again, enable MFA wherever you can. Um, if it's not enforced um, by default, you know, dig around in the settings or find a way to enable it. Um, I read an article recently where um, Fortnite, does anybody play Fortnite? Yeah, a few. I don't play, but I read an article that said um, they were giving away some sort of free aspect of the game if you went and enabled MFA about your account, which I thought was really cool because that was a really good way to sort of gamify or incentivize users to take proper security behaviors um, without it being seen as this big user experience friction. Um, so I like that. That's, that sounded like it was, um, that was cool. If you do choose MFA, again, I would choose the strongest one available. So if you can only do text, that's fine. If you can use an authenticator app, I recommend doing that. If you can use a YubiKey and you have one even better, they're like 40 bucks on Amazon. Um, seriously, enable MFA. And then check your passwords against breach. So um, both your accounts and your passwords. So has anybody heard of Have I Been Pwned? Cool. This is Troy Hunt's site. Um, you can go in and enter any email address that you have around online accounts, and it will bring up any known breaches that's been found in. Um, so you can get an idea of um, sites that you may have used or registered for that have, that have 
breached your data or um, attackers may know account passwords for. So, so checking that um, is always a good thing to kind of know what your posture is. You can also check your passwords against that list. So um, like I said, there's literally billions of passwords that have been compromised. Um, and so there's these big databases of pwned passwords. And you can check a password that you're attempting to use against the list to see if, it has, if it's in that list. So it'll come back and tell you, oh, you want to use the password, password123. No surprise, that one's probably been pwned. So that's a good site. And again, Troy, Troy Hunt um, writes a pretty good blog. Um, from an information security perspective, I like to read it from time to time. So another good blog, so, so Troy Hunt's blog is there. Um, th that I like to read is Krebs on security. So Brian Krebs, um, he's another security writer, and he's a good follow on Twitter, too. Um, breaks a lot of information security stories about breaches and things like that, and, and just generally a pretty good blog to read. And that's all I have. Um, I think we're probably ending a little early, so hopefully that's okay with everybody. <laughs> Any questions? Sure. Um, how much behavior data do you actually need to like be able to confirm behaviors are from like a specific person? Yeah, so it's a good question. So the question was, um, how many behaviors or how much data do you have to have to really make a good determination about a user? So it really depends on the, the algorithm that you're using and, and what kind of machine learning is behind that. So it, it, it may be that you would implement something and then gather data for a while um, to try to learn what the outliers are. Um, you probably also start with things like impossible travel that aren't so much behavior based, um, but, but are based on things that indicate higher risk. So, so I don't know if there's an answer of this many attributes or this many logins, um, but if I had five logins for you and the sixth one was from a unique location, what I may do is take an iterative approach. So um, I may write my algorithm to say, okay, five logins from Lafayette, that's great. One from Indianapolis, that's a little weird. I'm gonna prompt for an MFA, um, or I'm gonna ask them to, to take an action, or maybe I'll just let them in, but send an email to their account. Hey, do you know that you had an attempt in Indianapolis, if that wasn't you, you know, call us, call our help desk. Um, if that escalates, right, so then now I get 100 straight logins, all of them are from central Indiana, and then I get one from Russia. Now I might block access or, or things like that. So it's an adaptive approach. I don't think that there's one right answer. Uh, a lot of it is about, when you talk about machine learning, what, what you're really doing, um, and I get questions about kind of like AI and machine learning, and, and what I kind of, what I kind of say is AI is not, it's not like what you see in the movies with like iRobot. It's really just having a whole bunch of data and having computer programs that can write decisions based on that data. Um, so the more data that you have, the more predictive your algorithms can be, and then you can take action on that. Um, a lot of the folks who are doing this too also share data. So um, it's, it's in everybody's best interest to know what um, common breaches may be, so, so there may be some information sharing going back and forth to say, hey, this is a blacklisted IP. Maybe everybody would want to know about that. Other questions? Um, if there's always going to be outliers, like someone moving or someone changing their habits or getting a new job, are we always going to have to fall back to those manual things like passwords and security questions? And if so, why don't we just make sure that there's always a password in place and look for behavior as well? I don't understand why we have to get rid of the password altogether and only keep the behavior. So, so you don't. 
um, so, so the question there was, um, there's always going to be outliers. Somebody's always going to take a trip um, to somewhere that they've never gone before and, and log in. Um, so, so how do we how do we accommodate for that? Um, the answer is is that you want to take a combination of those of those things. So when you talk about authenticators, there's lots of different authenticators. We talked about a few of them. One of them might be a password. One of them might be a device authenticator, like a smartphone. One of them might be um, an MFA factor. I could have even registered multi-MFAs um, in, in any given scenario. So the idea would be that you would always require at least one factor of authentication, right? Like, I'm not just going to trust based on a behavior that you're you. It's that behavior plus some other set of things. So it's that total story. Um, if I do get a behavior that is an outlier and I combine that with something that I have low competence in, like a password, okay, so an example may even be I log into this site and I always, I never say remember me. I always want the interactive M MFA, right? There are some sites that allow you to say, hey, this is a private computer or remember this computer, Amazon lets you do that. I, I typically don't, right? I just, I want, the, I want to use the, the, the prompt for MFA and so I do. Um, if there's a transaction that triggers that, that, hey, somebody clicked the remember me button, and I know that Rob usually doesn't, um, now I might trigger an action, right? But it's always that combination of things. Like I have to, if I'm gonna let this user into the site, um, that, that total combination of things needs to give me um, a high enough probability that that's him, even accommodating for the outliers. Other questions? Yeah, one of the things, I mean, users, uh, their, their behavior changes in ways beyond simply the authentication, depending mm -hmm. on the different authentication mechanisms. Yep. So for example, uh, when Purdue went to a two-factor authentication, the, one of the side effects was I tended to leave things logged in until it forced me to time out as opposed mm -hmm. to logging out when I was done. Yep. Uh, how does that, I mean, how do you account for things like that in deciding on authentication? So one thing I've learned is that you can never account for what people might do, right? So you can try, but, you, but, but people will do things that you do not intend them to do. Um, and the more friction that you put in front of a user, the more they'll try to alleviate that friction. Not intentionally by being bad, but, but just by doing things that, that, that seem normal. I don't want to get this prompt every time, so I'm going to leave this session open even though I know I should leave it closed. Um, so the, there are definitely things that you can do um, to combat against that. And, and some of the behavior risk-based things, I think, play into that where um, I allow users the option to do a, a remember me um, so that they don't get prompted every day or every time their session ends. That way they may interactively end the session because the next time they instantiate one, as long as it's from that same browser, same computer, right? there's a cookie there that says, no, they've already done the MFA, don't interactive prompt them. Um, so, so it's always about striking that balance between user experience and security. If you build something so secure um, that, that it creates too much frictions for the user, they're gonna find ways around it. Just understanding that and balancing those two when you're building authentication systems, I think is important. And you see that with a lot of the consumer sites by allowing you the option to sort of register your device or remember your device. Uh, 
other questions? Well, let's thank uh, Mishman. Sure.